0: On the Dallas Opera Network, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh,
1: Let's get ready to rumble! Hey, wherever you are, however you're listening, it's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined on America's Talk Radio Show about Opera by Oliver Camacho, Weston Williams, Ashley Hardgrave, and Matt. Cummings. All right, this week, we dribble you through the other two regions of the Opera Land March Madness bracket, the classical and romantic regions, all leading up to the grand finale on next week's show, Do Not Miss. Then, two-minute drill, exit stage right, James Levine, plus Tulsa Opera cancels a commission by a black composer written to commemorate the Tulsa Massacre. Oliver Camacho, it's been a crazy week since I last saw you. How's it going?
2: Um, It's been great. And, you know, for our audience, uh, we record on Mondays, and it's been a week that's been crazy full of opera news, uh, so much so that we're pushing our interview with Carrie Ann Matheson to next week. I already got her permission. She's fine with it. So for those of you tuning in today to hear Carrie Ann, that will be next week.
1: Weston Williams, what's new?
3: Oh, I'm just going to say that uh, I- I'm sure that you'll all miss the little animojis that we were last week.
1: We <laughs> no, did have a really.
3: little a little technical glitch last time, but we got through it. And as, a, and as the uh, audiovisual uh, editor, it was fine. I just, you know, sometimes you just have to take life as it comes at you, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> And that's where I've been for the past week.
1: <laughs> I was waiting for my avatar to look like little orphan Annie, which was the third-grade joke people and it made was. about me. <laughs> buddy, buddy. Matt Cummings, how are you, my friend?
0: I'm good. I've been reminiscing a lot about remembering what it was like to live in Rogers Park for when Loyola went as far as they did in March Madness 2 years ago and just how like weird it is that I don't that I'm not surrounded by cheering at all times. <laughs>
1: I'm sure Ashley is also feeling weirdness that the uh, Razorbacks have uh, gone so deep into this. What?
4: What do you, what is it? What is it? Is it, is it, is it Woo Pig Suey? Is it, is it Woo Pig Suey? Is it, is it Bud Walt Marina? What could is it, it be? all uh. of the different logos for the Razorbacks? Why? There's what that,
3: you... there's that Zoom production value that OBS is known <laughs> and cherished for.
4: Uh, no, in all seriousness, this is very, very exciting. Again, Arkansas is not a place – Gesundheit, all Roberts Camacho. Uh, Arkansas is not a place that has any sort of professional sports teams or allegiances. So the entire 2.5 million pe- person state gets behind the Division I team. So when they're good, which is not often, everybody's very excited <laughs> – they won a shocking nail biter against Texas Tech last night, which means they are officially in the Sweet 16. The Hogs are in the Sweet 16. Nothing else matters to me. Nothing in opera. Okay, maybe a little bit, but officially, nothing else matters to me this week.
1: All right, let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Week two of three of March Madness continues on the OBS. The bracket is on our website, operaboxscore.com. Half the bracket, which is also behind me on this amazing whiteboard, has been filled out.
3: Spectacular.
1: Uh, We got another half to fill out. And then on the show next week, we are going to walk you through... All These competitions, of course, let us know what you're thinking. Opera Box Score at gmail.com. We're in the classical and romantic divisions. We're going to kick it off. Matt Cummings, who is your Dark Horse classical opera pick?
0: Okay, this Dark Horse might sound familiar to you, Opera Box Score stands out there, because I have <laughs> mentioned it on this show before, uh, but I'm going with Luigi Carabini's opera Medea. Ooh. Or midday, because nice. it was originally composed in French. Uh, this is an opera that I that isn't a, it isn't strictly overlooked, but it's definitely not respected as the kind of piece of work that it actually is. It's got a reputation for being a diva vehicle because the main person who has sung the role in the 20th century is the great Maria Callas. That's who we played <laughs> singing Ooh? it last time we talked about this. Who's you might have st- you might have heard of her, Maria Callas. <laughs> K- K- Callas, uh, it's
4: pronounced Callas? It more or less. Like the, uh, on the, okay. But
0: this is, so, so this is a, it's an opera that has a little bit of a, you know, complicated history. It was originally composed in French, then it was, then it had to but it's mostly been performed in Italian and when you have these kind of competing versions of a work a lot of times it's hard to you know sit it, sit down and take it all in at once because you got bleeding chunks of it that are being excised by conductors who think that this goes better over there things aren't in the right Stresses aren't in the right place, you got dialogue, you've got recitatives, which one is better, it's hard to know. When you take a look at the actual, like, critical edition of the score that was reconstructed with what Carabini actually meant to be performed, it is a staggeringly effective piece of theater, piece of music, that tells the story of the uh, Greek sorceress Medea, whose husband Jason was going to leave her for someone else, and in her thirst for vengeance, ends up... Uh, murdering their children and burning down the temple so you got a lot of drama here you got a lot of character it's visceral it is it has a lot of the same kind of touches that you might recognize from mozart but i think there's a lot more fire in it and uh you know there's nothing wrong with it being a diva role but it's definitely not just a diva role
1: all right let's see how it's going to fare against weston's classical pick
3: I'm going a little uh, out of this world uh, for this pick. If you'll pardon the extremely funny pun, I will. Which not. You can tell because no, everyone is laughing so uproariously at it. Uh, my uh. pick is Haydn's <laughs> seminal looks classic. Like he just ate a sock. <laughs> my pick is Haydn's seminal classic, Il Mondo della Luna. The World on the Moon. Um, now, this is, uh, I, I will say, uh, there's a certain disadvantage I have in this category because I am not a big classical guy. I'm, uh, you know, all the rigid forms and sort of stock characters and stuff don't really appeal to me because, you know, I'm all about the the early romantic sort of breaking everything, which should surprise no one. Um, but I've always thought that El Mundo de la Luna is a great alternative to, like, like your Cosi Fantute sort of, you know, comedies. It's a lot of works from the period. The, the plot doesn't really matter. It's pretty predictable. The characters are pretty stock characters. There's the clever young protagonists, uh, a lecherous old man. Uh, there's romance. Uh, basically, what happens is a uh, uh, who's a fake astronomer, tricks Buonafede, who's the lecherous old man, into thinking that the moon is populated by sexy women who will do anything a man tells them to. Um, and of course, this becomes a plot to uh, marry Buonafede's daughter, Clarice. Uh, and everything basically happens as you would think. They fool him into thinking that he's on the moon. Someone dresses up as the emperor of the moon. They have uh, a little ballet sequence uh, with these moon people. Uh,
1: I, I'm not following any of the plot. It doesn't Why matter. did you pick this so opera? <laughs> <It's> all-
3: <laughs> well, the thing about it is, is that a lot of the operas from this time period have a certain, uh, shall we say, uncomfortable element to them in terms of how they... Uh, view non-Western cultures. The Orientalism is real, folks. And, and, you know, the, the whole idea of women who are sexy and, like, exotic and, like, will do anything a man tells them to, very Orientalist. However, I think there's a very interesting reading of this opera which takes that lack of knowledge about other cultures that Western Europe had at the time and placing it in the context of this fake moon society has a lot of really, really good satirical potential. And um, honestly, it's got some bops in there. I love Haydn. I think he's extremely underrated as a composer. Um, He's got a lot of like the uh, the energy of Beethoven, but like he's like having a good time. And it's I just have a real soft spot for this opera, and that's why it's my pick for this bracket.
1: Moving on to the bottom half of the classical region, Oliver Camacho.
2: I'm going to pick an opera I've never heard before, but uh, I, I have a good feeling about it. Uh, it's called The Anonymous Lover, and it's by Joseph Bologne, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges. Uh, L.A. Opera recently staged it, and I think they also inserted uh, an aria that has been recorded um, by Paul Freeman in his 1974-1978 collection of important Black classical composers, uh, there's an aria from uh, an opera called Ernestine and the fragment exists and they inserted that into the 1780 chamber opera by Joseph Bologna, the anonymous lover or L'Amant Anonyme. Anonyme. Um, so I haven't heard it but I'm really interested in the uh, career of Joseph Bologna. Uh, he is sometimes referred to as the Black Mozart and that's very insulting. Uh, why do we have to center everything around white people? And I love Mozart, <laughs> so don't get me wrong. But um, Joseph Boulogne was a uh, French composer of uh, Caribbean descent. He's from Guadeloupe. And uh, he also served as um, a general. Uh, he led an army, I think, of like a thousand troops. Uh, colonel, He was a colonel. He led a troop of a thousand soldiers. Uh, he led the black troop, of course. Um, he was a violinist and composer. He was composing from a very young age. Uh, he was a, he studied fencing. Like he just has a super interesting, you know, life story. Um, and he did spend a little bit of time with Mozart. I think that they shared the same, uh, apartment in France for like a month or two. There's some story about that. And (laughs) Mozart was inspired to compose his famous, um, Sinfonia concertante uh, after hearing Bologna's music. So, who influenced who is the question. Mm. Uh, so, I want to put uh, a composer of color into this bracket. And, uh, you know, we are in a time when the Golden Globes and the Oscars are all getting, you know, woke. So, I think the March Madness opera bracket also is going to get woke. L'Amont uh, Anonyme by Joseph Bologna.
1: And that pick is going up against Ashley's classical choice.
4: And as the resident lady on the panel, uh, (laughs) both of my picks this week are a little lady-centric in different ways. Uh, My classical pick is uh, Rossini's La Donna del Lago, uh, because Mm. who doesn't love? A little lady of the lake. A nice little bit of feminine mysticism that has to do with a large body of water. Uh, so La Dunga Lago is the first Italian opera that was going to be based on uh, Sir Walter Scott's romantic works. You know, two dozen and some change later, we get to Donizetti's Lucia, but this is this was the first one. So at this point, like, romantic tales about the Scottish Highlands were all the rage. Think Brigadoon before Brigadoon. This stuff is better than Brigadoon because most things are better than Brigadoon. But anyway. <laughs> For an opera about civil war in the Highlands, this is relatively muted and tame, but it is very lovely. In terms of the music, it is a real definition for me of of bel canto. You can, if you have an incredibly fire tenor and a high lady voice of any classification that moves, you're going to have an amazing night at the opera if you're seeing Donna Del Lago. Uh, you know, the Met did sort of a lukewarmly perceived production, sorry, a lukewarmly received production of this in 2015, but for my money, do anything that you can to get your hands on a copy of Joyce Di Donato with any orchestra at any time in any place singing anything from La Dona del Lago. I love, love, love Di Donato as, as anything in La Dona del Lago. So that's my pick. Rossini's La she Dona could sing and the, the tenor Lager.
0: role in *La Donna De Lago*.
4: She, she could sing the phone book like. I mean, she's another phone book singer for me.
0: The high the tenor line is high enough that she really could sing it. Though she really
4: could. It's <laughs> very. That's why I said you got to get a fire tenor. So it's, and it's you know, it's it's one of the like Rossinis that you don't think about, uh, and that's why that's why I'm a fan. Actually, I just want to
2: make sure it. that our referee is going to allow. An opera from 1819 to go into this bracket or are they being redshirted?
1: <laughs> I will I, t- I will allow Oral it. Oral Roberts Camacho. How <laughs> dare you? Ashley, we're gonna stick with you as we move into the last uh, region, the romantic region with your choice.
4: Ah, well, I said we were on a lady train, and now we are staying on <laughs> Shoo, it. Me up, get me off! Get me off! I'm sorry, Oral Roberts Camacho. I'm never going to call you anything but that, by the way. That's your name forever. Uh, so, we, we have a lot of different operas about Cinderella. You probably know Massenet, Sandrillon. But do you know about my gal, Pauline Viardot? Eventually, Pauline Viardot Garcia. But Pauline Viardot wrote a beautiful version of French cendrillon I mean, technically, it's a little bit few years past the cutoff because it premiered in 1904. Oral Roberts, don't come for me. This one stays. Um, she was part of this, like, <laughs> Viardot, the composer, was part of this vocal dynasty. Her father was in the premiere of Barbarousville, like the premiere, and he invented the laryngoscope. So, you know, she became a singer and a composer to, like, nobody's shock. Um, During her retirement, after she had been a singer, she started composing for the students that she had in her vocal studio, these, like, small-scale operas, and that's one of the places where this saint came from. It was a way for her to create pieces specifically for the singers she had, to challenge them, to give them exercises, to sort of work out the parts of their voice that they needed some attention on. So I thought that was very, very cool. Um, If you've, you know, just in general, if you haven't heard a lot of Yardot, get your hands on some of it. It's really lovely. She's, uh, she's got a really special place in my heart. The music of uh, this, Sandrine specifically, it's very charming. It's very her. It's, it's pretty complicated for something that was going to be like a student opera. Um, The coloratura range of the soprano, bonkers. It is just, Bonkers! If you can get your hands on an aria from it, just (laughs) just sit back and let it happen to you. It is out of this world. Um, The plot is a little bit different from the story that you know. So Cinderella reads about a fairy tale prince before she ever meets one in this one. Um, Her late father is revealed to have this like sketchy, checkered past. And that is what makes the prince's attraction to her all the more scandalous. Because before it was like Cinderella's dad was wealthy, but then her stepmom made her a servant. But it turns out she was kind of noble all along. So when she gets with the prince, it's not that big of a deal. But in this one, it's far more scandalous because she came came from, like, sketchy folk. Um, So that was one of the things about it that I thought was kind of interesting. Um, Nobody really does this, uh, and it makes me a little bummed. I think Caramore, like, 20 years ago, was one of the last, like, Mm. productions that I could find. Still, it's a story that you know. It's got some surprises. The music is French, and it's lush, and it's elegant, and it's virtuosic, and most importantly... It's composed by a lady, Pauline
1: Viardot's Sandrion. Lush and elegant, definitely not words I would use to describe Weston, but he is going to pick <laughs> the opera that's going up against Ashley. Romantic choice, what's it going to be, Weston? Well, West.
3: uh, it's kind of funny that you uh, we, we went the, the sort of uh, uh, the female composer route, because I feel like you've already won up to me a little bit here. But my pick is Paul Ducas uh, Ariana and uh, bar blue which I'm probably pronouncing wrong I'm sure Oliver will correct me at some point uh, but it means Ariana and Bluebeard not to add another Ariana to the list so many. Um, but when we were when we were kind of like composing uh, composing uh, creating this uh, list of dark horses I, I wanted to think of something that was specifically an alternative to a classic. And one of my favorite operas uh, is Bluebeard's Castle by Bartok. He's my sort of my go to first opera suggestion.
0: Which, like, Um, for most people is also a dark horse, but yeah. Well, that's my
3: common mainstream. uh, You know, this is good for everyone, bring the whole family. Um, But uh, it's based on the Bluebeard legend, of course. Um, There are many, many variations on it. But Ariane and Bluebeard. Is based on another iteration of that legend, and it's very, very different. Uh, the thing that I really like about this is that Dukas was something of a proto-feminist or a first-wave feminist, which is very unusual for a male composer of that period, or really any period prior to, like, I don't know, 1990, uh, <laughs> if we're being real about it. Um, and uh, he, he, he's—it's very, very interesting because the character of Ariana is the. Polar opposite of Judith in uh, Bluebeard's castle. And whereas Judith is just one uh, another victim who's going to wind up spoilers in you know his little vault uh, underneath the uh, the the castle. Judith is basically like the the basically all of the wives have been disappearing. The peasantry are up in arms. They're like, what's going on in there? And Ariana's like. I'll go find out. I'm just going to go in. I'm going to ask him. I'm going to rescue them. And she goes in along with her maid, who's very funny. She freaks out. She freaks out over everything. But Ariana's I'll just like pulling open doors, not scared of anything. She really reminds me of a helden tenor a la Siegfried, which is not a character dynamic you see a lot in opera. Uh, so think woman Siegfried just barging in, going for it. And the cool thing is, even though it's Bluebeard's castle, uh, his name is in the title. He sings for like two minutes—not an exaggeration, less than two minutes—and uh, she has she monopolizes the rest of it. You spend more time with the with the wives who have been captured. She rescues them. She talks to them. She offers to take them up to the surface. Um, but interestingly, there's some social commentary here because you have to remember this is first wave feminism. Uh, it's just sort of bubbling to the surface. Women do not have the right to vote yet really in France or in America or really anywhere in Europe at this point, um, uh, there was a lot of fear amongst people who were like, oh, we don't want to rock the boat too much. We don't want to ask for too much. So a lot of these wives choose to stay down with bluebeard despite their rescue which is a really sort of like kind of a disturbing moment because you've like been following this journey of ariana to rescue them and you support her and and she's great and but she like respects their decision and she goes out by herself just like just like a, the badass she is and it's such an interesting opera and it needs to be played all over the place and the music is amazing it's big it's um very Sorcerer's apprentice but a little bit more uh, harmonically adventurous. Lots of really beautiful French orchestration. I can it think of many a things gem. that are
1: more harmonically adventurous than Sorcerer's Apprentice. So you're saying, uh,
2: Wesson, that the role of Bluebeard in this show is shorter than uh your description of the opera
1: oh absolutely
3: <laughs> like not 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 a joke he's got like he's got like three lines it's great i, love I will this say opera.
2: that in the original screenplay to pretty woman um the richard Gere character actually took the julia roberts character to see uh bluebeard's castle oh that's right um
1: yeah.
3: but they oh, you know they had to make it more audience yeah. friendly so Traviata, you know
1: Nice oh, little tidbit there. That nice
3: would way. have given it a lot more like wait, with the, the jewel, the snappy snap jewel. Yeah. One Ooh. more
1: pair to figure out here. We're going to throw it over to Matt Cummings for his romantic pick.
0: Uh, I also am following in the steps of, uh, you know, a generous definition of romantic. But most of the romantic <laughs> era composers are the ones who get too much attention anyway. So we're fine like broadening those borders a little bit. Fair. I have picked the opera by Leos Janacek, Yenufa, mm, which choice. is... Straddles the Romantic and early Modern era, uh, and Janacek's thing—he was a Czech composer in a time when there uh, weren't a ton of uh, non-German, non-French, non-Italian composers that were really given the same kind of uh, attention, prestige. He was—he's in like a little bit of a later generation to Dvorak maybe, but what he really did was he wanted to capture the text of ordinary people and make his music sound like natural Czech speakers were doing it. And so what really happens when you have a composer trying to write something like that is that this feels like a play. The action like waxes and wanes on a moment's notice. There are no Arias. It is a very difficult story to describe without a family tree because it involves multiple cousins that are maybe going to marry each other but also <laughs> not going to marry each other. Um, but the drama that it encompasses about a pregnant woman who may who may or may not be able to find a suitable match in a town at a time where that meant everything and the choices that everyone has to make to, to both save their family honor and make sure that they have enough money to survive the winter. It, it it is very moving. It is extremely powerful, and I'm a stan.
1: Oliver Camacho, round I just out the, want bracket. the referee
2: to note that *Giannifah* um, uh, premiered in 1904, and uh, *Ariana barbula premiered in 1906. So, anyway, Seven, I'm going to go with actually. I'm going to go with Bellini's *I Capulete e Montecchi*. This is an opera that. Most sopranos know exists uh, because they have worked on the Cavatina of Juliet. Uh, This is one of the most terrifying arias ever written. It is basically a cappella. There is a harp (laughs) (laughs) and one of the most, you know, archetypal uh, bel canto cantilenas to sing. Um, This is an aria that can bore audiences to tears and win the BBC Cardiff Singer of the World competition. So it's just one of those pieces that like, if you sing it well and you understand what bel canto means, uh, it can really go right to the heart. Um, And it has more recitative than it has Consilena, which I always love about this period. (laughs) Uh, There's also a great role for Romeo, Uh, Romeo, who is sung by a mezzo-soprano Uh, You know, keeping that tradition of the Baroque and classical eras of having the romantic voices be very close in Tessitura, uh, which went away later on in the Romantic period. But then we see, like in French opera, for example, uh, you know, soprano and very high tenor, which can get to those thirds and sixth harmonies that we find uh, in earlier operas. And then we get to Verdi and then we have full on tenor soprano singing, you know, an octave apart. Anyway, in Capuletti Montecchi, we have that beautiful, very similar voice types. And the role of Romeo has a fantastic aria cabaletta to open his role. Uh, one of the, my favorite cabalettas I've ever written. And another well really, really difficult um, cantilena for the Romeo, but not as hard as uh, O Quante Volte. And there's a great duet for them. And then there's a bizarre random tenor aria that's also very good. So uh, this is not the Bellini opera that gets performed all the time. If you are going to hear Bellini opera, you are probably going to hear Norma. Uh, but I think it's a great example of bel canto writing. Uh, I think that it's very sweet. We know the story. It doesn't go the same way the Shakespeare goes, or the way the same way that the Guno goes, for that matter. But it's its own thing, uh, and I think it's very charming. And if you are a fan of singing, it's a great thing to listen to.
1: This is a fantastic bracket.
3: There it is.
1: (laughs) There it is. You can see it on our website as well. It's operaboxscore.com. Let us know, of course, what you think is missing from the bracket, who should have made the cut. There's a couple teams titles that I think should be on here that are not. I will talk you through those on the show next week when we work through this bracket for you. Two Minute Drill is now. This just
0: in. The two-minute drill. All
1: right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in opera land this week.
2: The Metropolitan Opera Orchestra has voted to accept temporary checks in exchange for returning to the negotiating table. This will be the first time the orchestra has been paid since the pandemic began, making the Met Orchestra the last major ensemble to secure a pandemic deal in the U.S. The deal came on the heels of
0: a letter by Yannick neze decrying the lack of paychecks for the musicians. Composer Daniel Romaine's commission for Tulsa Opera's Greenwood Overcomes, commemorating the Tulsa Race Massacre, has been canceled. Romaine refused to change the word damn in the phrase God damn America at the end of a song written for Denise Graves. According to a statement from the Tulsa Opera, Graves said that the lyrics did not align with her personal values. Romaine claims that despite this, he never received a specific request from Graves to change the lyrics before being dismissed from the project.
3: Architect Jean Nouvel has won the design competition for the upcoming Shenzhen Opera House in China. Nouvel's design will integrate the building into the coastline with an unusual curved, transparent roofline, proving once and for all that opera house designers really did run out of ideas after designing the one in Sydney.
4: The Ryan Opera Center has announced three new fellowships in an effort to recruit more BIPOC artists, creating additional positions for a conductor pianist director and stage manager. The conductor-pianist position will be added to the 21-22 Ensemble, while the other two positions will be active in May 2022.
1: In trade news, Opernhaus Zurich has named Annette Weber as its new director of opera. Weber will take on the new position in September, replacing Michael Fichtenholtz who is under investigation for abuse.
2: Santa Fe Opera has announced the hiring of Mike von Artsen as a COVID-19 Compliance Safety Manager for the 2021 season. Van Artsen will set guidelines for the company that include limited capacity, mask requirements, digital tickets, and 100 sanitizer stations. Santa Fe is currently set to open its season
0: July 21st.
1: This week's yellow cards.
0: Spain. The Gran Teatro de Luceu will present Otello on March 27th, despite the rise of COVID-19 cases in Spain. This week's red cards.
3: Austria. The Wiener Staatsoper has postponed its live stream of Parsifal due to the positive case of COVID-19 detected at the company.
4: Belgium. Opera Liège has canceled its April performance of Verdi's E Lombardi as the country cracks down with restrictions to curb rising COVID cases.
1: Germany. Staatsoper Stuttgart will extend its closure until at least May 1st.
2: France. The French government has imposed a strict lockdown of Paris and 15 other departments across the country. The lockdown will last four weeks and will only allow
0: essential businesses to be open. Poland. The Polish government has shut down all theaters, opera houses, and shopping malls, saying that regional restrictions were not enough to stop the spread of COVID-19. Exit stage right, French soprano Renee Doria has
3: died at the age of 100. Her 40-year career included roles like Rosina, Lakame, and Pamina, and she made a number of notable recordings, among them Tales of Hoffman, Thais, and Massenet's Sappho.
4: Russian bass Yevgeny Nestorenko has died at 84 from COVID-19. He had an international career, including three decades at the Bolshoi. He was considered to be the finest living Boris to sing Boris Godunov, and in 1981 he was awarded Italy's Golden Viotti Medal for his interpretation of that title role.
1: Des Moines Metro Opera announced that their founder and artistic director emeritus Robert L. Larson passed away peacefully on March 21. A company press release noted, quote, The strength of his vision to bring quality performances to Iowa brought thousands of people to this magnificent art form, forever changing the lives of so many.
2: Bass baritone Luciano di Pasquale has died at 57. He was known for his Mozart and Rossini roles and had also been the artistic director of the Arte Canto Festival in Bassano, Italy.
4: Conductor and sexual predator James Levine died on March 9th at age 77. He is survived by his longtime companion, Suzanne Thompson, whom he married last year.
0: And on this day, March 22nd, in 1842, it was the birth of Carl Rosa, who was the founder of Manchester's Rosa Opera Company, which presented opera in English in London and in the British provinces. On this day in 1911, Hermann Yadlovkar became the first opera singer to perform two major roles in the same day at the Metropolitan Opera. Soprano, who originally was a mezzo-soprano, Marta Myrtle, was born on this day in 1912. Also born on this day in 1930, American musical theatre composer Stephen Sondheim. In 1944, it was the destruction of the Great Opera House of Frankfurt when the city was destroyed by World War II air raids. Happy birthday also to English baritone Alan Opie, who was born this day in 1945. And in 1948, it was the birth of Stephen Sondheim's arch-rival, British composer Andrew Lloyd Webber. (laughs) Happy birthday also to American soprano Mary Jane Johnson, born in 1950. In 1978, it was the debut at the Met of American baritone Pablo Elvira in Verdi's Rigoletto, and closing it out with one for Weston. In 1979, the first performance of Dominic Argento's Miss Havisham's Fire in New York City.
1: And And that's your two minute drill.
2: The late Rene Doria singing the cabaletta of Qui la Voce, Vien di letto that recording from 1954. And she is a contemporary, or was a contemporary, of Maria Callas, And it's just so, I mean, it's informative to hear that at the exact same time that Maria Callas was trying to innovate and pioneer, we have performances like this, which is how these types of arias and these roles were used to be sung. You don't hear people doing that anymore.
0: Right right on the bubble, right before it changed, I think. Yeah, that that kind of cuckoo clock school of ornamentation (laughs) is, is pretty defunct at this point.
2: I mean, the thing that is remarkable, at least that I noticed as we were listening to it together is it's hard to feel the beat. You know, it's like, it's lovely. I mean, it really is lovely, but you can't quite, you know, tap your foot to that. God
0: bless that conductor. (laughs) Just watching
2: for
4: dear life. You have (laughs) to know that piece already to know where she's going.
1: So Matt, the negotiations at the Met are taking place via carrier pigeon.
0: I mean, I hope that everyone (laughs) has learned that open letters are not the most efficient way <laughs> to make change. Yes, there was an open letter from Yannick Segan, but I refuse to believe that that open letter did more <laughs> than his position as the music director of the orchestra in fair, terms of fair. getting people to the negotiating
3: table. It really is uh, kind of wild to me that it's taken this long, because I, I feel like over the past few weeks, we've already started talking, hopefully not prematurely, knock on all the wood, about the light at the end of the tunnel, the pandemic, and uh, and so forth. But the Met really has been completely without pay. Uh, can't afford many can't afford to live in New York City anymore for a whole year, and it's just remarkable that it's taken until now for enough things to come together for any kind of pay for them. And um, good luck. Hopefully, they'll get a better deal than they currently, uh, the Met wants to give them at this point.
1: Oliver Camacho, oh. uh, talk us through the ups this and downs is downs. Mes- tul- this is messy. Tulsa Opera, yeah.
2: So uh, we're recording on March 22nd, and on March 20th, composer Daniel Romain posted, uh, Tulsa Opera just decommissioned me I was invited to compose a work for them. They offered $1,500 to create a new work for Piano and Voice, including any words I wanted to use. I wrote an aria called They Still Want to Kill Us on the Race Riots of 1921. I wrote the music in words. The last two lines are, God bless America, God damn America. Tobias Picker suggested I omit the word damn. I refused, explaining that is how I felt about this country, so they fired me. That was what he said. Then the Tulsa opera made their statement and uh, I'm not going to read their entire statement, but it went somewhere along the lines of this was written specifically for Denise Graves and Denise Graves didn't feel comfortable saying this. And we asked Daniel Romain to consider changing that text and he declined to. And so they are paying him for his work, Mm -hmm. but they are not performing this. And then shortly followed um, today, a letter from the Black Opera Alliance. There's so many, this is, this is we're not gonna be finished talking about this, but that's where <laughs> right. we are right, right now. Um, so I think the Black, I mean, the Black Opera Alliance is coming uh, on the side of composer Daniel Romaine. Um, and it's just messy. I mean, this is an event that's supposed to commemorate the Tulsa massacre. And here is a white artistic director firing uh, a black composer uh it's not a good look
0: and particularly about from a concert that was supposed to commemorate an event that has been overlooked by history because most of the because it was terrorists terrorism against black people and white american history doesn't like to commemorate that yeah Yeah. i I think uh
3: denise graves um you know i understand you know being uncomfortable with saying that and you know voicing uh voicing that as you know as just as valid as you know uh, any other opinion on it but i i can't help but feel that even if that was really what happened if they uh, i i feel like there there had to have been a better solution than to just basically say okay we're not performing it goodbye you know uh, according to uh the composer um they never uh, there wasn't Really a communication specifically asking for uh, from from Denise Graves, I should say, a a communication from her specifically asking to remove it. And I think there could have been a better conversation there between the two of them about why he wanted to keep it in, why she felt uncomfortable doing it. I I feel like there was almost certainly a better solution here than to fire him, you know, even if you're interpreting it as generously as possible.
1: (laughs) So, Ashley, is it that Denise Graves is being made the scapegoat here?
4: Thank you. That was my initial question uh, because, you know, we hear from the composer. We then hear a follow-up statement from Tulsa where they say, you know, Miss Graves was not comfortable performing this. The composer says, well, I never heard from Denise Graves. So my initial question, which I could really see going either way, was did she, in fact, voice her discomfort about this. That was my first sort of moment of skepticism about it. In in discussion with some of my colleagues, it seems to make sense that, you know, she's got sort of some relatively, you know, conservative things and, and some of the things in her history might've let us, you know, get to the place where it's like, oh, maybe she would have been uncomfortable with a phrase like that. Mm-hmm. Me, I was more worried that they were using that as a scapegoat to, uh, you know, appease some more conservative donors and board members in a relatively conservative area of mm. the country. So I, I really don't know. Um, but that was that was one of my first moments of skepticism about that. And, and actually, statement.
0: I honestly wouldn't be surprised if it's some of both of those things. Per- yeah. Personally, right. I do think that it, it would be surprising to me if Denise Graves had wanted to sing that text and they ended up cutting it. Like the fact that they that the fact that the decision was made against allowing this poetry to says that on some levels, she wasn't in favor of it. I mean there totally but there totally are I mean fair. there's a wide range of, you know, reactions to that where between I absolutely won't do this ever or this wouldn't have been me. And it's interesting that this is the exact that that this God bless America, God damn America is saying is I mean this is straight out of the first Obama first presidential campaign. There was a huge yep. controversy about uh, his pastor Reverend Jeremiah Wright saying something like this in a sermon, and I do think that a lot of this just comes down to a fundamental disconnect of not understanding where this emotion is coming from on the beha- on, on the part of the white people who are in the audience, and it it's disappointing to me that we're that. We will not have the opportunity to make a case for why this is a strong poetic statement and, you know, what the meaning behind it is, you know, like, where is this composer coming from? Why is he saying this? If we believe in freedom of speech, we should be willing to hear him out and, you know, exercise some empathy about why that might be the situation here. So
2: the the Black Opera Alliance says something I think that's that really makes an excellent point. Um, the company hides behind a quotation from a black woman instead of offering a direct response from Mr. Picker, yep. who had been yeah. in touch with Mr. Romaine over the course of these events. Unfortunately, this insidious tactic to pit black people against each other is one to which we have grown accustomed. We reject it. Mr. McConnell, Mr. Picker, and Tulsa Opera should have honored both Miss Graves's personal preference and Mr. Romaine's personal creation by hiring an additional singer who would perform the aria as
0: commissioned. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely.
1: We'll see what kind of uh, space this takes up in the coming days and weeks. James Levine died at the beginning of March. We just found out about it last week.
3: Like, Ashley- like, like as soon as we finished the episode, <laughs> like the moment.
1: Yep. You know, there's like OBS bump and there's OBS curse as well. You know? <laughs> Ashley, how how are we gonna how are we gonna get into this one?
4: I know you might be expecting sort of a a trademarked, uh, Ashley Hargrave rant here, and and you'll get one, but it's a little weary and subdued, um, you'll notice the way I read the news item. If that upsets you, I encourage you to do some deep work and some deep homework on the circumstances, because we have too much evidence and too many reports for any of that to be construed as anything but an actual factual account. Um... This was hard for me personally, not because of the the loss and the passing of a person uh, who actually did at one point have a really deep impact on my life. Um, I, I It was hard because I was reminded of how sad and betrayed I felt uh, when I got a real understanding of what the initial allegations uh, were about him. And I was even further saddened and further betrayed this week uh, when I saw how it was reported and reflected on by all of the different Mm -hmm. areas and corners of the opera industry. Um, There were some people that lauded his career in moves that didn't surprise anybody. There were folks that offered up uh, retrospectives of him that were in my opinion an incredibly poor taste uh, we've we've looked at a couple of different uh, we've looked at a couple of different things when it comes to the passing of Levine which like George said happened on the 9th of March but we just found out about it last week on st. Patrick's Day there's no correlation there it just happened to all happen the same day um, you know and you know Michael Broder wrote in The Washington Post this this article about sort of the the myth uh, of the person versus who's passing but I, I was bothered by something that he said when he talked about sort of the demise of his career, you know, he, he mentions you know, the Met cast him out, uh, no sugar. They paid him off, uh, to mm-hmm. the tune of three and a half million dollars, uh, and are part of the reason that now orchestra members can't feed their kids. Uh, I lean a little more towards, uh, the assessment of Kenneth Woods, uh, who said Levine was not a great, you know, He wasn't a great man with a single tragic flaw. He was an almost completely horrible person with a single tragic talent. I will never, I will never besmirch the musical ability and the musical offerings that Levine gave as an artist. Um, I will always, always speak about the abhorrence of his behavior and the abhorrence of the indifference to generations of opera industry professionals who did nothing and and saw things and said nothing. Um, you know, we like to bark a lot about culture wars and cancel culture, you know, myself included, but here's the thing. It, cancel culture is, when you get down to it, it's just accountability for abhorrent behavior that you thought you got away with, or it's behavior that you didn't think was all that bad, but now that you're being told that it's not okay, you're just annoyed about being corrected. We're, we're seeing... We're seeing these culture wars everywhere and we're paying so much attention to the warriors that we're not addressing the wounded and in a moment like this we're all wounded some of us more than others those those boys those victims those children we will never be able to fix them we will never be able to give them back part of the innocence and the lack loss or you know the lack of humiliation that they had before their encounter with this man. Uh, and, you know, he was one of my musical heroes. He, you know, I've spoken on this show before about, you know, seeing Beverly Sills on television and in radio. She, she was my idea of what an opera singer was. James Levine was the first conductor that I ever saw. And I knew, like, that was my caricature of what a conductor was. And I grew up in an industry, that, and, and in a conservatory setting that was telling me about how much of an artist and a creator and a master he was well all of a sudden there's this like you know worst kept secret in the whole world that's just sliding by at the bottom but everybody including myself was instructed to not pay any attention to it then i got to meet the man and it was one of the most emotional experiences for me it was i felt like i was at my musical pinnacle because i was going to get to be under his baton and that first rehearsal for me was a religious experience not one year later the Met finally decided to acknowledge what they've known for decades. Um, and we're seeing all of that again this week. And it makes me sad.
2: So in Madonna's piece in the Boston Globe and Kenneth Woods' piece, I think that's just his personal blog, mm-hmm. are uh, sort of where I think Ashley and I, I don't, I don't want to speak for the rest of you, where we sort of like fall like, yeah, that tracks, that's that's the take. And you know, I don't wanna not add something to the conversation, but just to quote Zoe Madonna, um, a culture of intimidation and silence that elevates a few to genius savior status and leaves everyone else to either fall in line or fall to the bottom. Um, that is so spot on. And we've talked before on the show how there's like this hero worship of what are typically older white mm-hmm. men who have been the gatekeepers in opera for so long and as a result of that we have this sort of like this mafia of gay men uh and not all gay men but you know of men controlling things in opera and women and people of color being pushed to the sidelines and um you know had james the been outed a long time ago and this had this been put to an end who knows where the orchestra would be i mean like people talk about what a great conductor he is and what he did for the met orchestra but are they really that great because of him or are they great because it is one of the hardest jobs to get in the world, you know? And yes, he did things to elevate American singers, namely people like Don Upshaw and um, Kathleen Battle, but don't discredit Don Upshaw and Kathleen Battle. They also worked really hard to develop their skill and their artistry. You know, he gave them a platform, but they did the work.
0: And and just to, to to summarize the when you're looking back at a career and a life and the lives that that life touched, it cannot be an afterthought to discuss the harm that was done. It's not a well, you know, dot dot dot. It it should really be the lead at this point in time, given everything that we know and given how many lives were negatively affected by this behavior and by the enabling of this behavior. That's not nothing. It's there are many questions in this world that are complicated about what to do in in situations that live in the gray area. This one is not in gray area for me. I will say, where there has been a vacuum of leadership for a long time in the arts world, we are seeing the some early steps to correct it with this new initiative from the Lyric Opera of Chicago to expand their Ryan Opera Center <laughs> to uh, through a through an inclusion and diversity an equity initiative to build up more leaders of color and from underserved communities, not just singers. We love singers of color. It's, it's great. But to have that always be directed by a white man, conducted by a white man, it it is, it does not have the same effect.
1: Weston, I'm going to give you 30 seconds to rant about opera houses. Go. (laughs)
3: Into a little mood shift here. All right. So if I have to see one more opera house that's been built on the water that kind of looks like a boat or a sail or whatever, I think I might scream. <laughs> uh, there's nothing wrong with it per se. They're like it's really cool and beautiful and whatever. But it's not innovative. It just looks expensive. And I think that opera houses really need to start moving away from the look how big and fancy and exclusive and separate from (laughs) you poors we are, you know. And uh, that's all I have to say on the matter.
1: Perfectly timed. Robert L. Larson at Des Moines Metro Opera died earlier this week. He was the conductor and stage director for every one of the almost 120 productions that the company did in its first 40 seasons. 120 operas. Robert Larson has directed more operas than I've had hot dinners. I'm going to put it like that. <laughs> what I love is that instead of flowers, memorial contributions can be made to a scenic fund which provides annual support for the design and construction of new scenery and original productions each year. Sweet. What a grand so gesture. Let us wrap this show up.
3: Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score.
1: Good call, bad call. We'll throw the ball around the horn here. We're going to go with Oliver Camacho to start off with a good call or a bad call.
2: So I saw Chicago Opera Theater's uh, Vanguard Opera uh, concert presentation of Matthew Recio's and Royce Fabric, friend of the show, uh, puppy opera, uh, puppy episode, uh, which is uh, basically a a coming out story. um, And it has to do with Ellen DeGeneres' coming out. And I didn't know that going into it. Hmm um and oh my gosh um alexandra lobianco was uh the the character called the comedian um and i've heard that name for a while now but i've actually never heard her sing man she's spectacular what a voice holy moly uh and one of the most touching touching scenes between two male singers uh the, the two gay characters, um, I forget their names at this point, but sung by Justin Berkowitz and Evan Bravos. Such a sweet scene. I was just thinking as I was watching this if I was, you know, a teenager studying voice, um, looking at repertoire, and I was exposed to this piece, this is the type of music I would want to do because it was so impactful and so sincere. Um, I loved it, and I cannot wait for this show to get on its feet. And for colleges and whatnot to be putting this on because it's it's gonna have legs. It's a really, really great show.
1: Almost nothing surprises Oliver Camacho, but when it does, I love watching his face. Don't you, Westing? <laughs> Matt oh, Cummings, yeah. you got a good call or a bad call?
0: I got a good call and a bad call. My, okay. Starting off with a good call for the epic troll from classical musician Jennifer <laughs> Wu, who, desi- who <laughs> made over her Twitter account to look like the Metropolitan Opera's official account and tweet on March 17th that in commemoration of the horrific shootings that took place in Atlanta... And the passing of James Levine. The Met would be streaming a uh, a, a production of Madame Butterfly, starring Anna Trebko, conducted by James Levine in a <laughs> condemnation of violence against Asians, <laughs> saying that racism has no place in the arts. That obviously is not what they showed. It's obviously not what they were doing. It is just tone deaf enough to seem like it could have been coming out of the Met socials.
3: I saw lots of people who thought it was absolutely yep. real, it, with it no was... reason
0: it was so convincing that the Met did have to put out a statement saying that it was fake. And the bad call goes to Twitter for suspending Jennifer Wu's Twitter account. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and they did cancel the performance, which was supposed to be a Bolena <laughs> that night. They just like went dark for one night.
1: Ashley Hardgrave.
4: Whoops. You know, it's, uh, as you can tell, it's been a little bit of a heavy week. Uh, lots, lots been going on. And so I've been trying to find ways to, uh, to sort of chase joy and enlighten, the levels of my heart and my soul. And uh, one of the ways I did that was by uh, going to get my first COVID shot, which ended up giving me even more emotions that I was also not prepared to process. (laughs) Uh, And so I had to go even lighter with the things that were giving me joy. Uh, And I I delved back into the world of K-pop that I don't usually visit. Um, It's (laughs) okay, yes. Um, BTS' Dynamite, that is a bop, it is a jam, it slaps I've listened to it no less than 50 times in the last 7 calendar days Um, so thank you BTS for making my life better, good call on all of you, yay (laughs) K-pop
1: I got a good call, a bad call good call is that I got to be part of my son's 5th grade class uh, March Madness group with my own bracket bad bad call is that I am literally dead last in the pool (laughs) (laughs) That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Help us deepen our bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts. Email us at operavoxscore at gmail.com. Subscribe to that podcast. It's on Stitcher. Just favorite our show on Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score is, well, you'll be sorry. Not sorry! Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For your co hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as your bracket gets wrecked. We're back with an all-new show next week. Carrie Ann Matheson from the San Francisco Opera Center joins us inside the huddle, we promise. This time it's really happening. And we play out the March Madness Opera Bracket to crown a champ. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, more spring in your step. Join us.